Listening to the Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show featuring two friends who've been in the same book club for almost 20 years. I'm Carrie, and even though we've been doing this show for a while, I often think to myself, holy moly, we could not be more different. <laughs> I'm a curmudgeonly cat lover, borderline antisocial, a lover of socks with cuss words on them, and always scared to death when Amy says she has an idea, because that usually spells trouble. Hey, I have good ideas. I'm Amy. I want to be your new best friend, especially if you are a book lover, and maybe even if you aren't. I'm also a dog collector, a Diet Coke addict, and I treat a good yard sale like it's a national treasure. Despite these differences, we both love wine, cheese, and talking to each other, and sometimes a special guest about books. Each week, we chat about what we're reading, as well as other bookish things like... Like authors in the news. Recent book-to-film adaptations. Weird stuff we've Googled while reading. And our TBR count. We're so glad you've joined us. Our theme this week is destinations. So if you've been listening to the show a while, you may remember that I like to read books about the places that I'm going to travel. Carrie, not so much, except for this year when she went to Scotland and she read like 10,000 books about Scotland. Okay, I did not. I read like three. Okay, well, you have to have five because... Two I had read previously? prior, previously. Okay. And it, maybe those were the things that made me want to visit Scotland in some dark recess of my brain. Okay. I don't know. So this week, we are going to talk about books of destinations of places that we've visited. And maybe some of these places are on your, you know, I'm going to visit them soon plate and therefore you can add some of these books or maybe you're just like hey this sounds like a good book i'm never gonna go there no but it still sounds like a good book but we had to have a episode about this so carrie could talk about her ten thousand books about scotland yep that's right <laughs> ten thousand ten thousand three you know whoever you whatever believe. whoever you that's believe. right Hyperbole um, queen. <laughs> but i actually am going to be doing this soon reading a book about a place i'm visiting because this is kind of a last minute trip but we are taking a trip with our middle son the one who is a chef to new york city he wasn't able to go with us on our family vacation so we felt sorry for him because he hasn't the last couple years been able to go on our vacation so we're taking him on a few day jaunt to new york city where he's never been and i think we're going to kind of eat our way through new york city but i have a book picked out ah yeah it came out just the other day beginning of August, I believe, called Broadway Butterfly. It's set in New York in the Roaring Twenties. It's a true crime novel based on one of the most notorious unsolved murders of the era about a scandalous flapper named Dot King. Weren't they... Weren't they all scandalous? <laughs> Weren't they all? Did they yeah. really need to say that? I thought, yeah. I thought flapper was synonymous with scandalous. And there's some bootleggers. It's 1923. It sounds like a good one, and I have it already. That's what I'm going to read in New York City. Okay. Well, maybe we should discuss this when we come back to talk about our books. But should we discuss our philosophies of, like, preloading destinations? You have no philosophy because you don't like to do it. No, no, I do have a philosophy. I feel like, well, partly I've got so many things to read that it's like, ugh, it, feels, it feels a little bit like work. and mm. But... 
I feel like it will create expectations for me visiting a new place. And I kind of like to go to a new place without any expectations normally. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say when I was in college, I went for a 10-week trip. The infamous. The infamous infamous 10-week trip to England, Mm -hmm. Ireland, and Wales. And we had to read. I think we read like three Thomas Hardy novels and three James Joyce novels. We had to preload. So maybe part of my preloading. It was it was like PTSD. Yeah, like that's the reason I won't do it because I had to do it on that trip. I don't know. But I haven't ever really wanted to do that. I think because. If I, I feel like if I have expectations and if it doesn't live up to these expectations, then I'm going to be disappointed. So it's better for me to go in not knowing what I'm getting into. Mm. And then I'm more apt to just enjoy myself. Okay. I guess I have an opposite philosophy. I'm shocked. We have opposite philosophy. I read them more for atmosphere, right? Sometimes I read beforehand. Sometimes I wait till I get there. Mm. But it's like soaking myself in the atmosphere, the culture, so that when I'm there, I feel like I understand the culture more. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's sort of an atmospheric thing. Mm-hmm. And some of the books I talk about today do have some history in them. They're like true crime or whatever. And so you might get a history of a city, uh, how it originated, but maybe in fiction form. Mm-hmm. It might mention places that you're going to visit, and it gives you a broader understanding of that. So a little bit of it is education, learning about a place before I go or while I'm there. For the Oregon trip we just went on, I didn't have time to read any of those ahead of time. So I pretty much read them all while I was there. Mm. Two or three weeks passed when we got back. So I mean, I'm still kind of finishing up some of those, but I didn't have time to read them beforehand. And that's okay. All right. So I guess that's my that's my philosophy. I, I just feel like it gives me a deeper appreciation and understanding. And it oftentimes makes makes me enjoy my trip more because I could say, oh, they mentioned that in the book. And this is what we're yeah. doing. And, you know, it just. Oh, and I, I can see that because there are things that I read about that. Then when I got to Scotland, I was like, oh, so that's it kinda what makes they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That connection. Yeah. So. Hey, Carrie. Hey, what? <laughs> we have some new listener feedback. Oh, that makes you so excited. That makes and happy. me so excited. We got a an email from a listener named Barbara, and she said, I love your radio program. Thank you so much for each episode. I have almost finished Grandma Gatewood's Walk, but I have another Appalachian Trail recommendation for you called When You Find My Body. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. So all those people who listened to that episode, I think it was with um, the author Vicki Johnson. That was a book that I talked about in that episode. Barbara has another Appalachian Trail recommendation. She also said, I also like when Carrie talks about native plants and the benefits of less lawn. Thank you. (laughs) And so when I emailed her back, I said, Carrie will be very excited that you are team lawns are dumb. (laughs) Lawns are stupid. So thank you, Barbara. And if anybody else has feedback that they'd like to give us about the show, or maybe you have book suggestions uh, based on um, some of the books that we talk about, we'd love to hear from you. you. You can contact us through our website. Last week, you were full of shows that you'd watched. I have no shows this week. You have no shows this week. I want to talk about 
one show in particular, it seems like right now we're not watching anything like any new series, but all the series that we like suddenly have new seasons. And one that we just finished is The Bear, which is on Hulu. We watched the first season last summer. The second season came out this summer. It is about a young fine dining chef who was working in a, you know, supposedly the best restaurant in the United States in New York as their as their sous chef. And his brother dies. His brother owns a restaurant in Chicago, a, a, a Italian beef restaurant. And so the main character, Carmi, who is often called the bear, comes home to take over this restaurant. The first season, I enjoyed it, but it was very stressful. <laughs> Getting inside of a kitchen and the pressure that goes on there. And my son is a is a chef and he works at high dining restaurants and he kind of liked the show because he said it was pretty true to life, but it stressed him out. Like when you do it during the day, you don't necessarily want to watch it on TV. I mean, I don't think that the places that he's working were quite this intense maybe, but anyway, the second season came out and this season they've closed the beef restaurant and he's trying to open his own fine dining restaurant with the team that he had And it's been a lot calmer in some ways, but there was an episode, but it was about Christmas. And it was a a flashback to when he had Christmas with his mother, I don't know, years before. And basically just how dysfunctional his family was. What? It was an hour long episode. and, And the way that the director did this episode, it made you feel how stressful it must have been to be in that house. It's sort of like a frenetic filming of it. And I almost had like a panic attack. Oh my gosh. I almost had a panic attack watching it. I was like, (gasps) (laughs) and yeah, like it was a lot. It was a lot, but it's like one of those things where I also enjoyed it. I thought it was really good TV. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a person who's easily anxious anyway, I mean, I don't think it made my husband that anxious. He really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too, but it's like one of those things where I loved it and I hated it, mm-hmm. like all at the same time. Mm-hmm. But if this topic sounds like something that would interest you, listeners, I would give the bear a try. Hmm. Did you ever finish beef? Because I remember no. you saying that that mm-hmm. one that made one stressed you tense me out. That one made me tense. Okay, because we did finish that, and I I liked it. No, but I could see I I have to be in a mood, you know. Like there's sometimes where I'm like. All I can handle is what we do in the shadows. I need stupid, <laughs> stupid, stupid. And but then there's other times where I'm like, okay, I can handle a little bit more. And I mean, this one was stressful. I don't know why I necessarily found it less stressful than the beef, except for maybe this was the beef. A beef, sorry. <laughs> beef. Because I, I I envision you as that old lady going, "Where's the beef?" <laughs> right. I don't know why I couldn't take the beef except for that. The beef, you did it again. I, okay. <laughs> I couldn't do beef except for that I think in the bear. This is why I'm saying the beef. Oh. I think, because it's the bear, the beef, whatever. In the bear, it's family members. Like oh, it's a family. And that was owned. strangers. And beef was strangers. Yeah. So with family members, I mean, it's tense. It's like, you know, it's the fun and dysfunctional, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But you kind of feel like. There's a limit to how far they may go. Exactly. Whereas with Beef, I mean, I only watched one or two episodes, 
but I'm very conflict averse. Mm. And it is conflicts with strangers. Right. right. I do better maybe with conflicts with family. <laughs> conflicts with strangers. I'm on Enneagram 9. That's like my worst nightmare. Oh. oh. Yeah. Even though you'll never maybe see him again. Mm. You still. Mm-mm. It's bad. <laughs> bad, bad juju. Bad, bad juju. <laughs> yeah. Bad juju. Okay. Speaking of bad juju. <laughs> We have some bookish news. Yeah. So there's a school district in Florida. This is in Hillsborough County. Um, They made some new curriculum guides where Shakespeare plays are not going to be read in full. There's only going to be excerpts. So the decision making behind this is that This is an article called Shakespeare Gets Caught in Florida's Don't Say Gay Laws. And this is from, it looks like, NBC News. Several Shakespeare plays use suggestive puns and innuendo, and it is implied that the protagonists have had premarital sex in Romeo and Juliet. So the students can check out Shakespeare's plays, but in the classroom, they're only going to discuss excerpts. And... (sighs) I have a problem with this, mostly because I, you don't get a full picture of the play if you're only reading excerpts. And if they think that these high school students are actually going to read on their own the and understand the parts that they don't discuss in class, they're crazy because high school students are not going to read those. The other thing, primarily I teach Hamlet and Macbeth, and I teach them completely all the way through and in hamlet at one point with ophelia hamlet says something about country matters c-o-u-n-t-r-y and so it's been suggested that this is a pun that back when shakespeare's plays were being performed you know when they were fresh and new that the audience would have understood this to not be country as in look at we're out in the country and it's very rural, but is in country, C-U-N-T-R-Y. And so this would have been very funny. Well, most kids, unless it's spelled that way, which it's not, most kids are not going to pick up on that because I didn't pick up on that when I was in high school. They're just not going to pick up on it. They have to be instructed. So rather than only reading excerpts, you could read the whole thing and just gloss over like not even go there on those things and the kids are not going to pick up on it they're just not so sort of like in greece when i watched it when i'm five i didn't understand that what was her name pinky yeah was actually pregnant i didn't get that yeah or rizzo rizzo Rizzo, sorry rizzo rizzo was pregnant well or or like when madonna's like a virgin came out and i was dancing all over the house singing like a virgin (laughs) i didn't know my mother was appalled but i'm like like a virgin because i didn't get it so it's shakespeare get over yourselves what is it i don't understand all this focus on purity and and we can't talk about i mean i hate to break it to these people but but, teenagers have been having sex since the beginning of time they got here because two people had sex (laughs) the people in in florida who are making these laws got here as a result of sex i mean i guess there could have been some some test tube babies it's possible 
But the vast majority of us get here through sex. So why do we make such a big commotion out of it? It's ridiculous. Anyway, that's my two cents on Shakespeare plays and only being these little sterile excerpts from Shakespeare's plays. Let's let's pick the most bland, boring parts of various Shakespeare <laughs> plays and try to make kids love them. Uh, kids don't want to love Shakespeare to begin with. You got to give them something a little bit tawdry to make them... When you were in school, did you all watch the film of Romeo and Juliet that supposedly had some nudity in it? Was that the one that was like the the one from the 1960s? I think so. Yes, we watched it. And I went to a, a Catholic all-girls <laughs> school and we still watched it. Yes, so it's from 1968. And it stars Olivia Hussey and Leonard Whiting was Romeo. And it won an Academy Award for Best Cinematography. Franco Zeffirelli was the director of that. And yes, we watched it and two kids fall in lust. Yeah. Wow. Since the dawn of man. (laughs) But let's not talk about it because we can't talk about those, those type of things. What are you reading? So we get lots of emails from publicists and And authors and authors. We get lots of stuff. And, you know, if we had all the time in the world and, you know, didn't require outside sources for income, you know, (laughs) we could just interview everybody on the show. But we heard about this book from a publicist it was a publicist and it's called alice the cat by tim cummings and i was kind of interested just because it's about a cat and it's got a cat on the cover and so you know i'm like you can't really go wrong you cannot go wrong so this was actually a very it's kind of a very sweet book it's a i would say middle grade book and it's about a girl named tess and she's around 13 And her mom has died of breast cancer, and her father is very, very, very depressed, which is understandable. And her cat starts acting weird. Now, you know, cats usually act kind of weird, but her cat starts acting weirder than normal. But her cat starts running away, and she can't figure out what's going on. And she discovers that her cat has run away. There's this kind of old abandoned house down the street. And she finds her cat there. And she also discovers there's this guy and this girl, and they're kind of like goth. And they have been hanging out in this abandoned house. And apparently this house is haunted. And so Tess, she's sad that her mom has died. She's worried about her dad. She's worried about her cat because her cat keeps running away and acting strange. And so she kind of makes, you know how sometimes situations happen in your life and they kind of put you in connection with people that maybe you wouldn't normally have connected with, but you're connected with them to solve a certain problem. Well, she connects with a a guy named Eddie, who is kind of a young adult who works as a paramedic, and a boy named Cotter. She kind of connects with them and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with their cat. And also discover the secrets of this abandoned house and whether it is actually haunted or not. So it was a very interesting book. I liked it a lot. It was laugh out loud funny. 
primarily because of a character named Cotter, who is just like he serves as the distraction element. And he's really sweet. Like he's the type of kid that you can imagine him where he's he's kind of weird, but he's totally okay with his weirdness. You know, ah. he's not embarrassed by his weirdness and he will play it up. He's he's very self secure mm-hmm. in that way. He's really funny. He's just really <laughs> funny. So it's it's a sweet book. Again, middle grade appropriate. It's about family and death and loss, but it's also about friendship and friendship in unlikely places. So and it's got a cat. That's awesome. So anyway, it's called Alice the Cat, and it was written by Tim Cummings. Very good. Very good. I'm glad that we were able to include that. Yeah. Well, what about you? What have you been? Well, mine's not really a sweet story. <laughs> Uh-oh. No, I really, really liked it. It is a book that I read because it's set in Oregon, but I didn't include it on the books that we're going to talk about today because even though it's set in Oregon, it really could be set anywhere. I don't think that it's site specific. So I just decided to talk about it. Just as a book. Just to confuse everybody. But it's called Tell the Rest by Lucy Jane Bledsoe. And I met the author at the Columbus Book Festival at a speed dating with an author event. So this is a cool thing that they had at this book festival where you would go in and there were five different authors. There were five different tables and people could sit at any of the tables and the authors would rotate around to the different tables and they'd give you like their elevator pitch basically for their book, what their book was about, and then you could ask questions. And I think they spent maybe like 10 minutes, maybe less, at each table. And so Lucy Jane Bledsoe was one of the authors that was at this speed dating, an author uh, panel that I went to. And when she first described her book, the subject matter, I thought it sounded like a fine book, just wasn't necessarily something that I necessarily thought I was going to read. And then she said that it took place on the coast of Oregon and I was sold because I was getting ready to leave. (laughs) Um, So authors, book festivals do entice readers to your books. Uh, They are very important for that. So uh, it is about two adults, Delia and Ernest, who as teenagers spent part of one fateful summer at a conversion camp for teens. This was a camp that was sponsored by churches. And if you have heard the phrase, pray the gay away. That was the gist of this camp. It was a camp for teenagers, basically, who had behavior that adults in their lives, whether it be through church or their parents or whatever, felt was possibly homosexual, or what they felt was deviant in some way. So they sent them to this camp uh, that was supposed to cure them of this. So one night, Delia and Er Ernest they run away from the camp, they hitch rides back to their their individual homes, and they never have contact again until about 20 years later. And then as adults, we catch up with Delia because she's been forced from her job. She's the college women's basketball coach uh, on the East Coast for a liberal arts college. Um, she's forced from that job, and her wife is also divorcing her. So she is going through a lot mm-hmm. at that moment, and she's not sure what she's going to do. But she ends up going back home to Oregon where she grew up for a season to coach the high school team where she was a state champion player. But going home forces her to face what happened at the church and at the camp all those years later. 
and she sees Ernest again, and the reader sees how this experience shaped the lives of these two adults. So there were parts of this that were really hard to read, especially about the conversion camps. Uh, And if you're not familiar, conversion therapy is widely discredited practice by the medical community, by by the psychiatric community, tries to cure people of their trans or homosexual identities. And right now, uh, there's only 20 states that ban conversion therapy for minors. I actually thought all of them had banned it for minors, but apparently not, hmm. which is a little scary. Um, but while all that was very heavy, a lot of this book features basketball and being a student athlete, which I was not expecting at all. And had I known, I might not have chosen it because stories about sports are not usually my jam, but I'm really glad I read this. It was compulsively readable, and I was thankful to read a book about the topic of conversion therapy from such an adept writer like Lucy Jane Bledsoe. So I would highly recommend it. Again, the name of that book is Tell the Rest by Lucy Jane Bledsoe. Very good. Mm -hmm. That sounds interesting. It was. It was very interesting. Never read anything like it. Hmm. So. All right. Well, I think it is time to... Go to bed. (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) It's time to take a break. And we're going to take a journey to our destination in our next segment where we talk about books about places that we've been. Strong sense of place. We'll be right back. We're back to talk about destinations. So uh, a couple weeks ago, we had an episode that was all about journeys. Well. We're not talking about the journey here. We're talking about the destination. All right. So I know you said you were going to talk about two Oregon places. I have no idea what the other places are. Do you want me to start with Oregon or other? It's your show. Go. So I'm going to give you two books about Oregon because I was just there. So just like last time, I have six instead of five because I cannot play by the rules. You can't. I can't decide. I'm such a bad decider. Such a bad decider. Okay. So both of these books were recommended to me by one of our very loyal listeners, Kate, who lives in Portland. And she had sent me this huge list of books. And I'm surprised. Did you knock on Kate's door and invite yourself in? I did not. In fact, I knew that she lived in the Pacific Northwest. I didn't actually realize that she lived in in Portland until after we had already left. I guess I didn't read it close enough. Woo, you dodged a bullet, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) But both of these books that she recommended, they were really great reads for Oregon. So the first one I'm going to talk about is called Burying My Dead by Betty Lennett Denny. And this is a historic... That's hard to say. It is. It is a very... Her name has a lot of the same sounds. Betty Lennett Denny. It has that eh. Anyway, this is historical fiction about Portland, Oregon, and it'll take you back and forth in time between modern day Portland and Portland in the second half of the 19th century. So in modern day, we have a reporter named Murphy who meets a young Chinese American woman named Anji in a graveyard as she's investigating a story about a local Halloween event. And the woman happens to be putting flowers on a grave of a man named Simeon Small who died in the 1890s. So Murphy inquires why she's putting flowers on this grave. And Angie's answer is that every generation of her family has been taught to do so, but she really doesn't know why. 
So they kind of become friends, and as a side project, they work together to find out the connection between this mysterious man and Anji's family. Uh, This is a great introduction through fiction of the history of Portland in its early days. It was a really great read. The only downside to this is that it is a self-published book, and the only available copies are through Amazon. That's unfortunate. But the upside is that you can get a copy of this, a download for $2.99. So bad part, you can only get it through Amazon. Good part, you can get an inexpensive download of this book. And I definitely recommend it if you're going to Portland. I thought it really captured the essence of, of the city and gave you a lot of interesting history behind it. But it's also just a great historical fiction novel, even if, you know, you're not going to Portland. So again, the name of that book is Bearing My Dead by Betty Lynette Denny. Now, can I go ahead and do my other Oregon one? Oh, sure. Okay. So the other Oregon one was also a perfect fit, but for other parts of Oregon. Uh, It's a book called Martin Martin by Brian Doyle. And this book is pretty hard to describe. On the surface, it's a coming of age story of a boy named David who's 14 and a small animal that's called a Martin, M-A-R-T-E-N. And a marten is an animal that lives in the forest, and it's in the same family as weasels and minks and wolverines. And both David and Martin, well, the marten's name is Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N. So both David and Martin live on a mountain in Oregon that we would know as Mount Hood, uh, but the Native Americans called Wyeast. And in some ways, uh, David and Martin's lives are kind of going on similar paths. But this book is so much more than a coming-of-age story. It's really a story of this mountain, the humans and the animals, the small, closely-knit community uh, that's on the mountain, the flora and the fauna, and how everything is connected to one another. It has a very indigenous philosophical bent to it, although I'm not aware that any of the characters were actually indigenous, but it just has that sort of mindset that everything is connected. And it is really just a beautiful book. But this book won't be for everyone because not a lot happens. It's definitely character-based over plot. But if you're a nature lover, an outdoorsy person, you care a lot about the environment and you really like strong, amazing writing. And if that's important to you, you must try this book. Hmm. So again, the name of that book is Martin. Martin, it's M-A-R-T-I-N, Martin, like the name, and then Martin, M-A-R-T-E-N, like the animal, by Brian Doyle. So thank you, Kate. Those were both excellent, excellent recommendations. So very good. Okay. So Scotland, let's go. What what you got? So uh, the first book, I had never heard of this author, but now that I've read one of her books, I'm like, woo, I got to read more of her. Uh, The book I read is Luckin' Booth by Jenny Fagan. I believe she's from Glasgow. So first I need to define what a Luckin' Booth is. Yes. Um, What is a luck and booth? Okay. So there are two meanings that I know of. So one is, okay, so St. Giles Cathedral that is on the Royal Mile in Edinburgh, it has these angled corners. And if you look at, you know, a few feet out from these angled corners, you will see it looks like metal Instead of brick, it's metal on the ground. Okay. What it is, is there used to be these vendor booths that were set up in the Middle Ages. 
and these stalls, right, that these vendors would sell their wares from were called Luckin Booths. Okay. Eventually they were taken down, but you can see on the brick, you know, where the where they ended. And so these would be all around St. Giles's Cathedral. So that's one meaning of Luckin Booth. Well, Luckin Booth also referred to tenement houses that were near St. Giles, but those were demolished in the early 1800s. So Luckin Booth, if it's near, it was a vendor stall, but Luckin Booth were also the name of tenements. Now, if you go to the Royal Mile right across from St. Giles now, I guess technically this is a third meaning, there is a restaurant called Luckin Booth. Hmm. We did not go into it, but I was like, Luckin Booth, Luckin Booth, oh my goodness. <laughs> so I agree with you on the, you know, reading a book helps you make connections. Okay, so, but this novel is set in a tenement house. So it's in that second meaning of Luckin Booth. So the, this novel follows nine people who live in the Luckin Booth tenements at various times in history. Four of the characters have stories told in each section of the book. So their story carries through no matter the time period. It's a bit of a ghost story set in this creepy, gothic-feeling apartment building. The story begins with Jessie. She came from one of the Scottish islands to Edinburgh, and she has been sold by her father to a man in Edinburgh. So that's where the novel starts. And then, unfortunately, the situation for Jessie and this man goes considerably downhill from there and pulls in other people throughout time and the space of this particular tenement house. So it it was a really interesting book. I mean, it was linear, you know, it was it was told linearly, but it was very imaginative. Like I said, it kind of has this ghost this magical feel to it. So I thought it was really cool. That one's called Luckin Booth by Jenny Fagan. Very good. Yeah. All right. You, okay, you've covered Oregon. Where is your next We're place? going to Maine. Woo-hoo! So my husband and I took a trip to Maine couple falls ago. I loved, loved, loved Maine. And of course, you can always read a Stephen King book because so many of his books happen in Maine. But another one that I read uh, that's actually kind of a classic is called The Country of Pointed Furs by Sarah Orne Jewett. This book was written in 1896. It was written as a, a serialized book, I guess, in magazines. And it was considered a driving force of a literary movement called regionalism, or some refer to it as local color writing. And this book is a series of vignettes about a little fishing village uh, off the coast of Maine called Dunnett Landing. The narrator is a woman who travels to Dunnett Landing from Boston during the summer to write. She rents um, a room and a house to stay, and she befriends her landlady and the landlady's friends. And each of these sketches is about a person in the town. And of course, these townspeople are interesting and quirky. And it really brings out how isolated, rural, but beautiful coastal Maine can be. This is short. It's really about novella length. You can read it in a few hours. But if you like classic literature, especially by women, you should give this one a try. And one of your favorite classic American authors, Willa Cather, referred to her as a an influence oh. on her writing. And Willa Cather yeah. did similar kinds of regionalism, but with, you know, Nebraska, Nebraska and the Plain States. Cool. So again, the name of that book is The Country of Pointed Furs by Sarah Orne Jewett. Now, an interesting tidbit about this, one of our, I guess, podcasty friends, Bailey from the To Read podcast, she grew up in Maine. 
And I remember asking her if this is a book that they taught in school. She had never heard of this book because I had heard of this book, I think, in college. It was maybe in like one of those compendium mm-hmm. of American literature right. kind of things, you know, but I thought it was interesting that she, that not only did they not read it in school, she had never heard of it. Hmm. So I actually sent her a cheap copy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I enjoyed that. Okay. Scotland 2. Scotland 2, The Highland Witch by Susan Fletcher. Now, this novel also goes by the name Korag. So... Depending on what country you're in? Maybe. I don't know. Korag is spelled C-O-R-R-A-G, and it's Scottish Gaelic word that means finger, and it refers to the monolithic stones that you'll often see in the Scottish mountains in the Highlands. So if you've ever been to the Isle of Skye and you've seen the Old Man of Store, they have these very strange-looking tall... Is that what... Did you ever read Outlander? Yes. And so there's these sto- this stone thing that she goes to that takes yes. her back in time. I so just wondered if that's the, what it was. I don't know. I mean, we visited a place called Clava Cairns. I think those would have been considered Cairns stones, but I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Maybe somebody who's Scottish and a historian would know. Korag is also the name of a Scottish witch in folklore who allegedly foretold this massacre that happened in Glencoe, which is a mountainous region uh, in the western part of the country. Okay, so that's sort of the background of what Korag means in terms of actually what the word means, but then also the folklore. In this novel, The Highland Witch, Korag is a young, poor woman who makes her home in the Glencoe area after her mother, who was Basically, she was killed for being a witch. So Korag witnesses the 1692 massacre. It's a historically factual massacre that took place. There was a a clan called the McDonald's, and about 30 members of this family were killed by Scottish soldiers because the chieftain or the the head of the clan did not pledge his allegiance or didn't do it in a timely fashion to William of Orange. So this actually happened. And so in the story, Korag, she is in prison for being a witch, considered a witch. And she is telling her story to a a man who comes, he's kind of a propagandist, and he comes to hear her story because he wants to know whether the king had a role in this massacre that took place. So, you know, I thought it was an, an interesting book. There's a lot of history in that one. A lot one. of history in that one, but it it sort of gave me, like, we, we actually visited Glencoe and stayed there. And so, I guess, you know, I was like imagining how people lived in that mountainous region. So it was kind of cool to think about and, and think about this book. Well, and I think Scotland, they killed the most witches like, yes. during their witch trials in any other place. Yes. And I actually bought a book when we were there about that. I haven't had time to read it yet, but yeah, I will at some point. Okay. All right. So we've been to Oregon. We've been to Maine. Where to now? Austin, Texas. Woo! Yeah. So I have a friend who lives in Austin. And for many years, I would go visit her during their Texas book festival. And usually we would pick one book that was on the the roster of authors and books that, that were going to be presented there to read. We'd buddy read it. And one year, the book we read was this one. It's called The Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal, and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer, 
by Skip Hollingsworth. So this is true crime. It's written by an award-winning journalist uh, at Texas Monthly Magazine. And when he was researching other stories, he came across old articles about this killer, later termed a serial killer. I don't, they didn't really have that term at the time. But the serial killer stalked Austin, Texas in the 1880s. And so this is a narrative story about the city as it was evolving from just sort of being an Old West outpost to becoming a burgeoning city. But it's also the story of this killer who had a lot of similarities to Jack the Ripper in London. It was around the same time period. And there were some theories at the time that it was the same person because they happened. I can't... you know, it's been a long time since I read the book, but either Jack the Ripper happened and then those murders stopped and then these started or vice versa. Mm-hmm. So there were some, there were some theory, speculation that maybe it was the same person who had just traveled. So in some ways, it reminded me a, a bit of Devil in the White mm-hmm. City by Eric Larson. It's, that's a favorite book of mine. That one's set in Chicago. So if you're going to Chicago... Definitely need to to read that one. But the difference is that you never find out in this book who the killer was. So if you're bothered by being left hanging, you know, there's no resolution to it. This is probably not the book for you. And so when I went back and looked at my Goodreads, I gave it a three star. And my complaint was not that I didn't like the book, but that there was no resolution at the end. So I think that had I known at the beginning that there was no resolution, my expectations would have been appropriate. And I would have rated it, I would have rated it higher. But because the story really is compelling, and it lives you gives you a lot of great background about Austin's roots. Cool. So again, the name of that book is The Midnight Assassin, Panic, Scandal and the Hunt for America's First Serial Killer by Skip Hollinsworth. Very good. Okay, Scotland number three. All right, so this one is a lot different than the other two. It's um, an Alexander McCall Smith book called 44 Scotland Street, number one. There's a bunch of books in this. He writes long series, lots of books. I read the first one. You know, maybe in the other ones you get more of the sense of place, Uh, but I didn't really... Like, reading this, it's set in Edinburgh. I didn't really... It could have been anywhere? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. It's a modern novel similar in style to Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City. Oh, yeah. Okay. And it tells about the life of these various characters. Uh, Primarily, uh, a young woman named Pat. She's about 20. She doesn't really know what she wants to do with her life. She begins working in an art gallery. She falls in love with her asshole roommate. (laughs) And she tries to help her boss determine if a painting is an expensive work of art or if it's just kind of a knockoff cheapo. So that's basically what happens in this story. But, you know, I read it because I was like, oh, it's, you know, you'll see it on all the lists. If you're going to Scotland, you're looking up books about Scotland, it'll be on that list. So I was like, okay. But, you know, having read it, I'm like, eh. I actually almost, I almost had on my list an Alexander McCall Smith book uh, for Italy. Because when I was in Italy, I read a book called My Italian Bulldozer. Mm-hmm. And I remember enjoying it. But it's kind of a palate cleanser. Mm-hmm. You know, they're mm-hmm. kind of fun, a little fluffy. Yeah. There's not a lot there besides being fun and fluffy. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with right. being fun and fluffy. Right. It was a great read to sort of get myself revved up yeah. for Italy. Yeah. But it, it wasn't like 
earth shattering yeah. or anything. Yeah. Okay. You know? yeah, similar. I enjoy his books, but yeah. I think palate cleanser is a good yeah, description not, not of heavy, him. just yeah. you know, just entertaining. Fun. Yeah. Wanted just entertaining and it fun. Was good. And then I was done. I was like, okay, that yep. was good. All right. What okay, Maine. We've been to Maine. We've been to Austin. We've been to Oregon. Where to now? San Diego. Okay. Okay. The book for San Diego is called West with Giraffes by Linda Rutledge. This story is a historical road trip that's based on a true story. And San Diego is the final destination, specifically the San Diego Zoo. It's set during the Depression, and there are two giraffes who survive a hurricane crossing the Atlantic. And when they get to America, our main character, Woodrow Wilson Nickel, drives the truck that drives them on a 12-day journey from the East Coast to San Diego to become the zoo's first giraffes. So at the age of 105, Woodrow is telling his story of his great adventure. There's a little bit of a love story in there with a with a female reporter, but also his love for these giraffes. I mean, you don't spend a lot of time in San Diego, but if you have been to San Diego, I'd always heard the San Diego Zoo was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. We went. It really is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So the fact that these were the first giraffes that were in the San Diego Zoo was just a fun premise to me. And it is it is based on a, a true story. Apparently, there were headlines all over the country because it was during the Depression. It was like right before World War II as as Hitler, you know, was starting some a lot of his rhetoric and the public like needed some happy, happy news. Yeah. And so reporters were following this truck huh. across the country to report on these giraffes. Wow. So it's kind of a fun story. Yeah. So and again, the name of that book is called West with Giraffes by Linda Rutledge. Cool. Scotland number four. <laughs> All right. So this book is definitely gives you more the feel of you are in Edinburgh. Okay. I actually listened to this book a little while ago, City of Ghosts by Victoria Schwab. So it is kind of, you know, geared because she does more like adult books under V.E. Schwab, I think. And the ones under Victoria Schwab are more like for YA? YA, I think. So this is a story of Cassidy. She's a, a middle school girl, and her parents are ghost hunters. And so they uh, get the opportunity to go to Scotland, and she has to go with them. And her parents are unsuccessfully <laughs> trying to find ghosts, while their daughter is very successfully finding ghosts. She is having really good luck when it comes to uh, stumbling upon them. So the story is set in historic Edinburgh, and it mentions several of the places that if you go to Edinburgh, you will and should see them. So Greyfriars Kirkyard is mentioned. Mary King's Close is mentioned. The Royal Mile is mentioned. Edinburgh Castle is mentioned. So, I mean, like you listen to the book and you feel like you're there. You know, if you're interested in Scotland, but, you know, you've never been, I would say read this because it'll make you want to go. And if you've been to Scotland, I would say listen to this book or read it because it will help you remember a lot of the things you saw. Uh, City of Ghosts by Victoria Schwab. I've not read that one, but I've read two others of hers that I really enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So she's an author that yeah. I that I that I like. Mm-hmm. All right, where to now? Okay, last place is the Great Lakes, and uh-huh. here is a funny story behind this because <laughs> <laughs> I like reading about places to visit so much that when you <laughs> last year. You went to Kelly's Island mm-hmm. that was in the middle of the Great Lakes, Lake Erie. 
And I read a book to immerse myself about where you were going to travel. <laughs> I tried to get you to read it. No, no. I'm like, no. <laughs> so no, thank you. the name of this book is called The Tale of Halcyon Crane by Wendy Webb. And <laughs> Wendy Webb writes sort of gothic tales, but they're set in the Great Lakes region. This was her first book, and it's a gothic ghost story. It's set on a remote island off the coast of the Great Lakes, much like Kelly's Island, that in the summertime is sort of a, you know, a remote resort, but in the wintertime, hardly anybody lives there. The main character, Hallie, has always lived with her father on the West Coast, and she thought that her mother was dead, because that's what her father always told her. But one day she gets a letter in the mail from an attorney saying that a large home on this island has been left to her by a relative. So she goes to see the home, discovers family secrets and the history of this house. There might be ghosts. Um, but I wouldn't really call this scary like a horror book. It's more atmospheric mm-hmm. and creepy. But I really enjoyed reading it while you were at Kelly's Island. <laughs> okay, so is this because there is an island that is between Canada and Ohio? Mm-hmm. This I don't. So well, this is a fiction. Okay, I mean, fictional island. This is a fictional island. Okay. I'm sure it's based on a real. I mean, I'm sure she has an idea in her head. Okay, but she's from Minnesota. Okay, and in fact, this book won like the Minnesota Book of the Year or something. Okay. The year it was okay. published. So I'm guessing that it is an island that would be more like near Minnesota and Wisconsin. Okay. I'm not sure what great lake that is. Uh, Lake Superior? Lake Michigan? Superior, Michigan. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It would be one of those two. Yeah. Anyway. So uh, she has... Wisconsin is Michigan and Superior would be north of that. So Wendy Webb has... She's written probably seven or eight books. I think they're all kind of, you know, thriller gothic type this might be the only one with a ghost in it but if you like to travel up to the great lakes and you want to read something sort of set there um it has a lot of atmosphere i recommend books by wendy webb and this particular one was called the tale of halcyon crane cool yeah you got any more scott i got one more one more let's I got go one more all right so this is a book i actually read in the 1990s it was published in 1992 The book is called The Crow Road by Ian Banks. I bought it when I was in the UK, the very first time I was in the UK. Uh, I've only been twice, so 30 years apart. It has a great first line. The first line of the story is, it was the day my grandmother exploded. Oh my gosh. (laughs) So said grandmother is being cremated, but no one told the crematorium that she had a pacemaker. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how this book starts. Excuse me. That's how this book starts. It is a story of Prentice. He's a young man who's kind of going through that muddle period that most, you know, like people in their late teens and early 20s go through. He doesn't know who he is or what he wants. What he does know is that his beloved uncle disappeared several years before. And he starts beginning to piece together the story of what happened to his uncle Rory. So this story is, you know, it's a bit of a coming-of-age story. It's also a mystery. And from the beginning line of the book to the title of the book. So the Crow Road, if you fly the Crow Road or go away the Crow Road, it means you die or that somebody dies. So the book is kind of his story about dealing with mortality and death and family and life. So anyway, highly recommend. That's a book that is, I mean, I read it when I was 19 and I have reread it. 
and oh. it's it's stuck with me again the crow road by ian banks and that's it that's it that's although all I, got. I think maybe i can get you you know whenever you travel from now on to read a book and we could Probably maybe not. do these once a year okay nope. maybe not all right because <laughs> i have more like i had i had like one for italy i had I had one for Santa Fe. I had one for the mountains of North Carolina. Oh, my God. I had to narrow it down. And I thought, well, maybe I can save some of these for, like, another episode that we do about this. But that's never going to happen, maybe. I don't know. No promises. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I can't promise anything. Well, uh, we're going to take a short break. But in the meantime, before we come back, we're going to get a five-star book recommendation from a fellow book lover. I have to admit it's been a while since my last five-star read. It's been a couple of months now, but it was definitely uh, Renee Carlino's Surrounders Life. It's an older book, but uh, it's been a recommendation from a friend because she said it's one of her all-time favorite books, and it's romance books. So I was like, I was in romance book mood, and I was like, okay, let's try this. I read it a couple of days, thought about it for a long time afterwards. If you like books about books, if you like books about writers if you like epic love stories it has it all humor emotions it just hit the right spot i guess and i would definitely definitely recommend it to everyone especially romance readers my name is ivana i come from croatia and you can follow me on instagram and tiktok my handle is mistuned we're back so subdued. <laughs> we had we were You've reached, exhausted yourself this this about this destination. I know. You've just you've I'm, blown I'm, your wand. It's yeah. You know how you come back from a vacation and you need to rest up from <laughs> your vacation. vacation? That's the way I feel right now. I need to rest up from talking about all these books about destinations. All right. So one book that you've added to your TBR. What's one book you've added to your TBR? Okay, I am. I'm going with the Scottish theme. Uh, you're kidding. Big time. You have a Scottish book on there? I have a book called The Scottish Chiefs. It was written by... So I'm actually reading a book, not about Scotland. It's about these two sisters. I may talk about this book more in depth. But it's about these two sisters who preceded Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters. Yeah. And one of the books, one of these sisters, Jane Porter, a book she wrote was called The Scottish Chiefs. And it's a novel of Sir William Wallace and Robert the Bruce. And it was extremely popular in Europe in the 1800s. Oh, this book? Yes. The Scottish Chiefs in the early 1800s. Yeah, because she preceded Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters. Okay. And so I was like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting that she wrote this really popular novel. So I thought, you know, maybe Is it still in print? I just added it to my TBR. I haven't looked into it that I have not looked into it. I've just Mm -hmm. added it, you know, will I get around to it? I don't know. All right. What about you? I added Destination? A, no, mean, no, it's not. No. It's not. No, Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. There is a bookstore in town called Foxing Books. They're a, a book truck, but they do some innovative, fun things. And one of the fun things that they've started doing is having, it's called the Battle of the Book Clubs. It's a book trivia competition that's at a local brewery. Perks got a team together of some people who listen 
here locally, and we did the last one. You missed it because... I was just coming back from vacation. Yeah, and you you were... I was like, yeah, yeah. too much! Too much. So we had such a... We didn't win, but we had such a good time that I thought, I'm going to do this every time. So what they do is they have somebody who's going to be the moderator. They choose the book, but it is a mystery to everybody else. And so you can pre-order the book for a discounted rate of $10, and they will deliver it in their cute little truck to your house, but they don't announce the title uh, until they make that delivery. So you're ordering a book and not knowing what it's going to be. It's a mystery. So then when the book arrives, then you find out what it is. And then a month from then is when the trivia contest is. And you can have a team of like up to six people. Anyway. I'm competing this time. Yeah, Carrie's going to compete this time. So the book for this time is called Blacktop Wasteland. S.A. Crosby is a Black author who lives in rural Virginia. Uh, This was his second book. Razorblade Tears was his first book. He has one that just came out called All the Sinners Bleed. Um, So this is the middle one. I'm excited to read it because I've wanted to read his for a while. I think it's sort of, it's noir-ish, you know? So I have a question. Yeah. Are you going to annotate? No, I should, but I don't really do that. Okay. I just, I wondered how competitive are we being? Like, I know we can't use the books. I understand that. We can't use the notes but, or the books. But it'll Annotating help Annotating would be nice yeah, probably, but would, I'm not really an annotator. But you can. I might. You can. Because I'm can. a little competitive. Yeah, I'm not that competitive. Well, you say that and you keep asking me how many books you I read. I know, but that's something I... Yeah. I mean, when I say I don't know how to annotate, I do. I mean, I, I, you know, I was an English major in college. Right, right, right. But I, I don't do it in my spare time. In your, I don't when, do that in my adult for life. Fun. Yeah, I don't. For fun. Yeah, I don't do it if I'm reading for fun. Okay. So, and I guess I still consider this fun. So I, you know, it's all going to go in the steel trap of my mind, which you know how, <laughs> which is more like a sieve. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Although you do remember things better than I do. You'll be like, somebody else talked about that book. Remember in 2020, episode (laughs) 43? I'm like, no, I don't remember any of that. I do remember stuff like that. I just don't remember things like, when is my dentist appointment? (laughs) (laughs) That's why you have me. (laughs) Yeah, because I accidentally put it on your schedule. But all right, well. That's it. What an ending. What a close. (laughs) I know. Join us next time. Got anything else to say? Nope. Happy reading. (laughs) For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at at perksofbeingabooklover.pod and on Facebook at perksofbeingabooklover. If you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. We have been getting great feedback and we love it. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.